0: That was a special version, Oh, Tidings of Comfort and Joy. Uh, if you take your fourth point, you're going to be able to see that we are moved from the, uh, from the book of Matthew to the book of Mark today. And if you could put the uh, word cloud up, I would like to be able to always highlight that um, we are a Bible-believing church. Uh, and uh, the focal point of being a Bible-believing church is that the main theme of the whole Bible is that you would know the gospel. In other words, from the, from the 66 books, I actually have uh, a prop that I was going to use at the party yesterday. Uh, this is an actual family Bible. Uh, in the front is called a domestic Bible. A domestic Bible. Uh, apparently, this is what you would have in your home. Not just keep on your coffee table, but this is something that you would read to the family. Now, this particular Bible was a family heirloom. It was my mom's mom that got it uh, from 1873. I finally went back and looked at it and it's a little hard to move around and my goodness the leather on the outside, but it's the, it's the King James Version. It has lots of stuff in it, even the extra books. Uh, but it is the same truth that is found in the scriptures that we have here. And uh, when you look at the uh, word cloud and you see the Bible being central, this is the way it always should be in any church that you attend. And if you are familiar or if you're listening in today uh, and your church doesn't open the Bible when you gather for worship, I want to challenge you to ask why. The scriptures, uh, as the catechism tells us very well, from the 1600s, some of the Christians there got together and they say, uh, um, what is our chief end? Our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him. And then then the question is, well, what rule has been given to help us to do that? To be able to glorify and enjoy God. And the answer is, the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, is the only rule to direct us how we can glorify and enjoy him. And then the obvious question is, well, what's in the scriptures? What do the scriptures principally teach? The scripture, scriptures principally teach what man is to believe about God and what duty God requires of men. When you listen to that very simply, it says, hey, the scriptures tell us about the vertical relationship between God and man. Okay, that's, you can find out a lot about that, that we're not God and we fall short of God's standard. So we're in trouble. And so the only way we can have a right relationship is that God enters into our world and saves us. So that's what the Bible tells us about the message of salvation. The second part that the Bible tells us is once we're saved, then we live as become the followers of Christ, or as the Catechism put it, is that we would, it's what duty does God require of man? That duty is not be, in order to be saved. That duty is because we are saved. We've been changed. The old has passed, uh, has passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Or as Paul says to the people in Philippi, he says, forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forth unto those things that are before I press towards the prize of the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I want to encourage us to move forward, and that's why I always put the word cloud out in front of you. I want you to know without any, that we're, we're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we want the word of God to be opened every week and to be exposed to you, for there is no other place where you'll find the words of eternal life. And we need those. Uh, If we could open our Bibles, you're going to see that the text for us is from the book of Mark. And I want to highlight some of the text for you. If you open up your insert, there's just a few that I'll highlight. And then we'll be reading a few more in a moment. But we're doing somewhat of a book study today. Uh, We're going to be looking at what Mark had to say about the coming of the Christ. And when you realize that Mark uh, was living, uh, he he was living in a time after jesus i think he actually lived during the time of jesus but he wrote his book uh, the book of mark probably about 25 years afterwards so when you look at the opening words this is uh, the inerrant inspired uh, this is the infallible word of god as it was given in the originals Uh, mark said these things in mark chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 the beginning of the gospel of jesus christ the son of god as it was written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. That's how Mark begins the, the, the gospel presentation that he uh, writes for the 16 chapters that are a tribute to him. Now, in Mark chapter 13, verse 26, and then in verse 32, this is towards the end of the book. Mark is focusing then on the, uh, on the latter ministry of this Jesus Christ, and he says, uh, he t- talks about the coming of Jesus, and then they will see the Son of Man coming. It's interesting that, that Mark has already seen the Son of Man come, but now he talks about then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And in verse 32, But concerning that day or that hour, Mark says, No one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. You see, the angels end up only knowing the things that God sends them to be messengers about. The angels knew that Jesus was going to come, but it wasn't until God sent them to the shepherds to be able to say, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. The angels didn't know all those details until God showed it to them. But here he says, but of the second coming, no man knows, not even the angels in heaven, not even the Son of Man, but only the Father let us pray our Heavenly Father as the Word of God is open to us today. I pray that we might learn, I pray that we might be attentive, but most importantly, I pray that we might draw closer to you. I pray that we might enjoy your presence. I pray that you might touch our hearts, that you will wow us to know that, that you know our names, not just the other people in the church building, the one who made the universe knows me. Lord, I pray that we might be overwhelmed by the fact that we have a risen Savior in this world today. In Jesus' name, I give thanks for this. Amen. If you look at the title of the message, it has to do with timing. Timing. Uh, the the uh, book of Mark ends up saying, nobody knows the time. Nobody knows the hour or the day. And so it's the interesting thing is about time. Now, um, one of the fundamentals of the, of the Christian faith, if you go back in America's history, uh, there was an era where there were five, they called them fundamentalists. I know some of you may actually remember being a fundamentalist. It, the, those terminologies aren't used in today's vernacular very often. But my dad was proud to be a fundamentalist. Okay? There were five fundamentals of the faith. Uh, Jerry Falwell was the one that articulated it quite loudly in, in my years when I went to Liberty. Uh, but but the, one of the main fundamentals was not only that Jesus was born of a virgin because he wasn't the son of Joseph, he was the son of God. But another one of the fundamentals was that Jesus was going to come again. Now, you've been attending church here. I'm assuming many of you have been here more than once. If this is your first time, then you you get a pass. But uh, do you know how often we talk about the coming again of Jesus? Do you guys even know what what our eschatology is? Some of you are wondering, what tongue did you just speak? Eschatology. It's the Greek word that means the study of last things. Uh, When you open up a theology book, you're going to end up seeing that. Well... I remember being challenged recently and, uh, and even before where some folks will say, let's, let's study the end times and let's look at the book of Revelation. Or some people want to say, well, are you, a, are you a premillennial? Are you postmillennial? Are you amillennial? What are you as far as the future? I imagine some of you here don't even know what I'm talking about. The whole idea of a millennial means a thousand years. And so if you're talking about Jesus coming before the thousand years, during the thousand years, after the thousand years, or is the thousand years just symbolic? Do you know? I imagine everybody has a good opinion. I imagine that not everybody believes exactly the same thing. I'm not even sure if husbands and wives believe the exact same thing. Of course, Tracy believes everything I do. But one thing that is universal in the church is that we believe that Jesus is coming again. Now, we used to sing the song, maybe you've heard it, Coming again, coming again Maybe morning, maybe noon Maybe evening, but will be soon Coming again You see, that flows right off of my lips. But I don't know if it flows off of yours, and I don't know if you live as if Jesus is coming again. Well, maybe your phone tells you in the morning when you get a, uh, an email sent to you that says, Jesus is calling. And you read that, and you say, oh, yes, Jesus said he's coming back again. Maybe you need those reminders. But the sad thing is, is that why doesn't the Church of Jesus Christ get more excited about the second coming? And it's the same reason that you'll find Paul's writing to the Thessalonians. That the Thessalonians people, uh, they were getting really frustrated. Here the Apostle Paul makes the journey all the way over to Thessalonica. And he preaches to them. And they're so excited. They've seen somebody that's met the resurrected Christ. They met the Apostle Paul. And Paul was telling them about Jesus coming again. And they believed it so sincerely that when some of their loved ones actually went to the hospital. I guess they didn't have hospitals back then. But, but when their loved ones were dealing with different doctors and they, were, they weren't living, they ended up dying and they had funeral services and things. You could find that the Christian community back in Thessalon- Thessalonica, they were frustrated. And they even were sending messages back to the missionary saying, hey, what's wrong? You know, it'd be like us you know, looking at some of the, uh, the, the, uh, the people from Utah that said that Jesus was going to come back at a certain day and, and then he didn't show up. Or some of those other denominations that that claim dates. Or some of those other preachers that, that say it's going to happen like this and this. And then it doesn't. They were wondering if Paul was wrong. And they began to wonder, is Jesus really coming back? And that's why when you read in 1 Thessalonians, he says, Brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to go through life Confused. And this is exactly the same message that the angels proclaimed in Acts chapter 1 right, before, uh, right as Jesus was leaving. He's standing on the Mount of Olives and the disciples are gathered around and there's a bunch of people on Ascension Sunday. Or, and and as, as Jesus is going up, the angels stop and they say, Hey, you guys! Look over here! Don't just stand there gawking at the clouds. This same Jesus is going to come again. Now, I made that point pretty clear. And we fundamentally believe it. Now my question is, do you live it? I don't know if you do. Because sometimes I question if I do. Because we can get so caught up and so distracted with the things of the earth, to the troubles that come every single day, that you may not be looking forward to Christ's return, like Revelation 22. John the Beloved dealing with the island of Patmos, being left out to himself, he he concludes the the last chapter of the Bible and he says, even so, instead of all of this stuff going on, even so, Lord, come quickly. There should be an urgency about that. My dad always used to say uh, he was looking for the upper taker and not the undertaker. And that was something that has been ingrained in us, to to not be looking to death, but to be looking to that resurrected state, 1 Corinthians 15. Now, that's by way of introduction. I brought a book up here today that is entitled 2084. Have any of you read it? 2084, it's uh, by John Lennox. He's a Christian. Uh, He's an apologist. He defends the faith to a lot of uh, atheists. He's quite smart, a mathematician and all. And uh, he puts these numbers 2084. That's not an addition problem or anything. Uh, It's kind of a spoof off of the other book that I'm sure you've heard of by Orwell. 1984. Okay, this is uh, 100 years later, 2084. Now, 1984 was a good year, not because of wine, but because I got my diploma from high school. (laughs) I often wonder what was going to happen in 1984. Well, as John Lennox poses the question, well, if 100 years takes place and God hasn't come back yet, then what is it going to be like? And it's really quite interesting. He said, artificial intelligence and the future of humanity. And he starts to paint the picture of what kind of things and what kind of ethics are going to be in place. When you have computers and you have, and instead of being able to drive your own car, your car will drive you. And, and, and instead of, and, and the intelligence that, the, that the, uh, the, IT, the, the AI will have, sometimes they'll tell you what you can do and what you can't do. Okay? They won't have to hire uh, soldiers and stuff like that. They'll just, already, you already won't be able to pass through different things because technology is going to tell you that you don't have this vaccine or you don't have this clearance or you don't have that. And before long, now that's, he's painting this picture of 2084. But I want you to live right now in 2021, okay? And uh, when we're living here in 2021, I want you to understand the nature of time. In order for us to talk about time, there always has to be a, uh, a starting point. There has to be a point of reference. So when I say 2021, that tells you 2021 years connected to what? Isn't it interesting? The birth of Christ, we say, actually many of us would say A.D. You know what A.D. stands for? From the Latin Anno Domini, which is, and the year of our Lord. Okay? And if you do the B.C., we always used to translate that as before Christ, uh, but now they had to add an E to it in the secular world, and you know what it stands for now? Before the common era. Okay? Whenever you see B.C.E., they're trying to eliminate Christ. Now, when you start to think like this, it still kind of makes me laugh because there's still a reference point to some point in time. If we're 2021, then if you back up 22,021 years, what do you get? You get a point in time where something happened. Okay? And I want to be able to tell you it was the coming of the Christ, it was the advent. The, the calendar even indicates it. Even, even the secular people today are forced to live underneath that bondage. That something happened. That the angel, what the angels proclaimed back then in those days, that behold, a savior is born, it changed everything. Everything before that was an anticipation, and then it was finally accomplished. And now it's being applied into the future years. Now, the idea of time is a great, is a great concept. Mark is one of those people that was caring about time. If you open up your Bible, you're going to see the book of Mark, chapter 1. and I'm going to flip us through quite a few verses, so if you can see it along. Some of them are going to show up on the wall behind me. uh, But in Mark, chapter 1, you're going to see in this short little book, Mark ends up telling us about time. When he introduces us to Jesus, uh, uh, he says, um, In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is verse 1, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I will send a messenger. Now, then he goes down to verse uh, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, that's where Mark begins with the story of Jesus. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee. Now, when was Jesus in Nazareth? Well, he spent the majority of his life in Nazareth, okay? If you, if you know the rest of the story from the other gospel writers, you're going to know that he was born in Bethlehem, he was there possibly up to two years, then God sent a dream to Joseph, his stepdad, and they ended up going to Egypt for a season. They stayed in Egypt until uh, one of the head leaders in the, in, in one of the Herod, uh, the one guy who was angry with at the idea that there would be one born king. When he died, then it was the coast was clear and they came back north. And instead of living in Bethlehem, they lived in Nazareth. And so Jesus was there potentially uh, almost three decades, 25 plus years. Now, and during that time, this is where uh, Mark picks it up. And he says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. And he was meeting with John, the baptizer, out by the Jordan. In other words, I believe he was going to start his ministry and be ordained as a priest because that's what John was. And so you you find there in verse 10, and when he came out of the water, immediately the heavens were torn open and the spirit of God descended on him like a dove and the voice of the father from heaven said, you are my beloved son. That's the one that Luke tells us was the born savior. Mark doesn't tell us all of those extra details about the birth and about the lineage of Christ. He just starts out telling us about Jesus as an adult at the age of 30. Did you know that? Just think about this for a moment. So Mark tells us about time, and he puts it in a different perspective. Mark's famous word that's repeated almost seven or eight times, I didn't count them all, but he he loves the word immediately. He's probably an organized person. Let's get it done immediately, immediately, immediately. And so when you look through the gospel, you're going to find out that this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. And he doesn't give a lot of flowery speech, nor does he give a lot of extra detail. He just gives you the basic timeline. And hence, the theme that I'm bringing out in this message about the second coming is about time. It's about the timings. Now, uh, what do we know about Mark? Is he your favorite guy in the New Testament? I've never found anybody that loved Mark, except Peter in the Bible. Paul comes to love him, uh, but Barnabas obviously defends him. Now, let me explain to you a little bit about uh, what we know about Mark. Okay, Mark is the son of Mary. No, I'm not heretical. He is not the half-brother of Jesus either. Uh, Mark's mom was named Mary, and uh, Mark ends up uh, having... um, an interesting relationship uh, because, because his mother was Mary, I believe Mary was the brother of Barnabas. So it h- ends up, we end up finding out that he's also the nephew of Barnabas. Now, do any of you know Barnabas? Barnabas was one of the, the big chief guys in the, in the Christian community that outside of Jerusalem. Barnabas lived in the Antioch area, which is towards uh, Syria, southern Syria today. Uh, Barnabas was the one that uh, when When in Acts chapter 4, he ended up taking some of his money and his wealth. It must have been the end of the year with a tax break. And he ended up selling it and giving it to the church. He gave a lot of money. Uh, Barnabas was all in for the gospel. And Barnabas is known many, to, to many, and especially to the Apostle Paul, because when nobody else would touch that guy after the conversion of Acts 9, Barnabas made the trip up to be able to get Paul and say, Paul, come on, we'll change your name from Saul to Paul, and I'll take you on as an intern for a year. You may not have realized this, but Barnabas, the son of encouragement, ends up taking the Apostle Paul under wing and says, come on with me. And after a year of getting training and actually finally people trusting him and believing that his, that his changed life, his transformation, that he's now a Christian, a follower of the way, he is a, he is a Jesus person, okay then, then the Apostle Paul now sets off on a missionary trip and now he becomes the leader and Barnabas becomes the support. It's really cool how it all works out. But most people don't realize that, that, that Mark is, an, is, is, a, um, is a friend of Peter's. In fact, for those of you, you know, when I mentioned, um, I want to be able to phrase it like this. Mark was Peter's Timothy. I don't know if you've ever thought like that, but Paul had several guys that he was discipling. Titus and Timothy and, and the way that Paul describes Timothy in, in uh, one Timothy chapter one and in one Timothy chapter three he says yes uh, Timothy has a biological mom and grandmother Eunice and Lois but Timothy has a spiritual dad and I'm it he says he's my son in the faith and if you go to one Peter and uh, I think it's in chapter five uh, you end up seeing that at the very end of that verse that Peter says that Mark Peter says that Mark was the son, uh, his own son in the faith. And so the relationship that Peter has with Mark, John Mark, is really special. Now, one thing you might not know about Mark is that Mark might have been an eyewitness to some of the things too. How do we know? If you'll flip over to uh, Mark chapter 14, towards the end, there is a little-known verse that's there that people should take notice of, uh, if I have it in front of me. It is, uh, verse 50, Mark chapter uh, 14, verse 50. And it says, and they all left him and fled. This is when Jesus was betrayed and arrested. And uh, then it says, and they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they even seized him. But he left that the clothes there, he was able to leave the clothes behind and he ran away. That's in verse fifty-two. Now, why in the world would we know about that? Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. The disciples have just had Judas come. They've they're amazed. All these soldiers with the stuff, and and Peter and, and Jesus has just said, "I am," and they've all fallen back. And then then they get up and they they put him in custody and they're taking him away. And Mark tells us. By the way, there was this young man there. He was—he uh, didn't have all fancy clothes on. He wasn't in the royal military. He wasn't in the—you know—he when he had this simple clothes on, um, the linen, he was just a young guy. Why would Mark tell us about this? Matthew doesn't. Luke doesn't. John doesn't. most, most of us believe it was him, and Mark is letting us know that he was there probably as a teenager, he is taking in some of these events that surround Jesus. If that was him, he was there when Jesus had had gone into Gethsemane and he had prayed that prayer, Father, not my will, but thine be done. And Mark was able to see the, the proceedings that took place on that Good Friday when the earth was shaken. He would have felt it. He would have been able to even know about the veil being ripped because he was right there. I think that's true. But I want you to know, That Mark was known to us because God chose him to write that gospel. The very first gospel, one written. We all think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I like to add revelation. Um, I believe that Mark was the first of those gospels written. Mark probably was written about 25 years after Jesus ascended to heaven. So if he had been a little teenager, he's 25 years older. And at that point in time, a lot of the folks that had been old enough to see it with their own eyes, they had already scattered, they would already been persecuted, they had run in different directions, and God uses him as, as an amenuensis to Peter, and they write down these details for our edification. Because all scripture is given by God and is profitable. He tells us about the time, and so I want to be able to just highlight briefly for you the time in Mark's gospel. For those of you that have the, five, the three points, you'll be able to see that Mark's focus on Christ's coming was not about when, but it was about the why that he came. That's the first point I want to draw your attention to. Secondly, we're going to see Mark's focus on Christ's going was not about when, but it was about the woes that Christ's followers would endure in his departure. And then thirdly, in the book, Mark's focus regarding Christ's next coming is not about when, but about the wonders at his appearing. So so if you're following along with me, I want to highlight first, why did Jesus come? Mark doesn't get into all the little details about the nativity, as I mentioned, because his audience is not the Jewish community. One of the ways we know this is that many of the terms that the, the, the Greek community or the Jewish community, the Jewish community would have a Hebrew title for them, the Greek community would have a Greek title, but Mark uses Latin titles. So who do you think Mark is targeting? People that know Latin. So he was dealing with the Roman Empire. He was dealing with the people, possibly even out there in Rome, folks that may not have been privileged to have firsthand accounts of what happened when christ died on the cross so mark's focus and we looked at it in mark chapter one through three in verses one through three of chapter one in the beginning of the gospel of jesus christ we find that that the reason why we mark is writing about the coming of christ is to fulfill prophecy from the very beginning he does what the gold candle tells us hey there was a prophecy in the old testament to prepare the way of the lord Do you know where that came from if you have one of those smart Bibles, you can see the little reference in your Bible. But it comes from the prophet Malachi. Okay, Malachi chapter 3, where it ends up telling us, uh, and you can hear the quote that's, that's also in Matthew and also in Luke. He said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. Uh, this is Mark telling us, get ready. Get ready. It's almost like on your mark Did you get the joke. On your mark, get set, go. Uh, He is basically saying, "Hey, it's coming, it's coming, just like the prophet said." And so that's one of the main reasons when he talks about the coming of the Christ, he says this is exactly what the prophets and the Old Testament community was looking for. Now, if you flip over to Mark chapter ten, verse forty-five, this is probably the key verse of the text uh, of the whole gospel presentation here. Um, Matthew ten, Mark chapter ten, verse forty-five. The uh, the Mark tells us, for even the Son of Man came. Now, I wanted you to be able to catch on. Did you know that that verse talks about the coming of the Christ? Mark 10, 45, he says, for even the Son of Man came. And now he tells us why. Not when, but why. He doesn't tell us when the angels showed up or where it was in Bethlehem or that the taxes were being required and that's why they had to have Joseph and Mary go down. He doesn't get into all that timing. He says, why? He tells us. He tells his, his uh, Latin audience, he says, Jesus came, the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve. He came to serve. Wow. Mark wants you to know that the, that the, the Christ came to do a job, a dirty job. Mike Rowe would be proud of him. He came to do a job that nobody else could do, it stunk. It was filled with a lot of difficulty. And that's why the verse goes on to say, For the Son of Man came to serve and to give. Yes, it almost feels like a perfect year-end offering. Uh, give. Give a little bit more. Give a lot. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to twist your arm, but I sure would love for you to give too. But the text is, this text doesn't focus on that. He says that Jesus, the Son of Man, his first coming was to give his life. He was born to die, born to die on Calvary's cross. He was born to give his life as a ransom, not for everybody. If you look at the text, though, this is where you get into the term of the elect. It was for many. He died for the ones that God gave him. You can read about that in John chapter 17 in the high priestly prayer. But Mark clearly tells us why Jesus came, not when. He came to serve and he came to, su- to suffer, to give his life as a ransom for many. It's really quite interesting when you, when you pick all of these things out. Uh, Mark tells us a little bit more about what was going on with the, um, in the first half of the book up to chapter 11. We see the sayings and the signs uh, of, this, of this one who came to serve and to suffer. But it kicks in in chapter 11 when we have the triumphal entry that uh, over a third of the book is focused on what goes on on, the, on that passion week. Mark really wanted his audience to know that Jesus came to die. He tells us that by how much time he gives to it. Second point is Mark's focus on Christ's going was not about when, but about the woes of his followers. Now, if you turn to chapter 2, verse 20, Mark chapter 2, the very first time that we realize that this Jesus has not come to stay, but Jesus has come to go. In chapter 2, verse 20, you can hear a little bit about it where he actually says, The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now, this is an interesting thing where at the beginning of that portion in verse 18, John the, John the baptizer's uh, disciples come, and the Pharisees, were all, uh, they were all trying to figure things out. Wow. Jesus is 30 years old, and they're trying to figure out, do we follow this John guy? Do we follow you, Jesus? And so the questions started arising, and they said, well, fasting is a great issue. So do we fast like the other people do, or do we not? And Jesus looks at him and he says, the bridegroom is with you. When the bridegroom is with you, you don't fast, you party. But when the bridegroom leaves, that's when you have some sadness. So in chapter 2 of Mark, he already starts to tell us that it's not going to be continuing on the same way as his coming. There's going to be a going. And when you start to understand this, realizing um, it was finally in chapter 11, he explains a little bit more about the going. That the bridegroom is going to end up leaving. And even though he has done some great work, he's not going to stay. He's going to go. And John uh, excuse, and the sorrow of the people will end up being turned to joy. If you turn to, to Mark chapter 11, I just wanted to highlight... Uh, excuse me, chapter 13 is where I want to take you. Uh, Ma- Mark chapter 13. At the beginning of this chapter, this is in the uh, the last week. This is before the Olivet Discourse, um, and and he came out of the temple, and as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, "Teacher, what wonder! What wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings! They did it with an exclamation point." And Jesus said to him, "Do you see these great buildings? By the way, they're standing there within view of the Temple Mount. You know, right now, if you're over there, you would see the gold dome of the of the." The Muslim mosque on top. But back in that day, they had Herod's glorious temple. It was very big, gold-covered. It was an awesome edifice. And so the disciples there are saying, Isn't this cool? We get to see this awesome architecture stuff. It was by Herod the Great. And Jesus looks at them and he says in verse 2, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another. They'll all be thrown down. He popped their bubble. They're like, they think that they're in a cool place and a great time, but it's not a great time. And Mark quickly shows us that as he sat on the Mount of Olives, which is down through the Kidron Valley and up on the other side, he, Peter and James and John and Andrew ask him privately. Now remember, Peter is going to be the one that disciples Mark further. So Peter gets the inside scoop here. And they ask Jesus personally and privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of the things that you're about to accomplish? And Jesus began to tell them. He says, see that nobody deceives you or leads you astray. He says, many will come in my name. Verse 6. And they will say that I am the Christ or I am the anointed one. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. But don't be alarmed. Don't be afraid. This has to take place. But the end, the time of the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdoms against kingdoms. There will be earthquakes in various places. Uh, And and the text actually says in in all kinds of topography. And, And there will be famines There are shortages of food. I don't think they mean supply chain famines, but it could be. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now, he gives you this illustration. Jesus is saying, hey, all of you know about pregnancies, right? Uh, They last about nine months. Praise God, they don't last 10 months, right? He says, but when you get the birth pains, when you know that that the labor pains are happening, then you know that the baby is coming. And he says... Look for these things. They're, they're markers in time. And that's what you find in chapter 13. It's quite interesting. But the, Mark's focus on Christ's going is, is concerning the woes of the people. The disciples are going to go through some difficult days. I think one of the most difficult days would be to stand there and look up at that cross where my Lord was crucified. You that are sitting here in church... You get to look at this wooden thing next to me with a crown of thorns on the top of the wood. Do you see any blood? No. Do you want to see blood? No. You see, when the disciples who had walked with Jesus through these three years, they saw the Savior die. They saw the Lamb of God suffer to the point of death. They heard with their own ears... Lama, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's pretty interesting to realize the woes and the worries, but Mark's focus doesn't just stay on the sadness of Jesus leaving. He tells us that he's coming again, and that's why I want to encourage you all today. Mark's focus regarding the Christ's next coming is not about when, but about the, the wonders of that appearing. I just briefly want to highlight a couple of things for you. That when he is talking about Jesus, and this is 25 years after he's ascended to heaven, does Mark sound like he's saying, eh, no big deal. No, when Mark is writing this account, he is telling us that everybody that Mark's going to be reading or touching by his words, by the uh, the scripture that's been written, is going to be challenging all of us to have our eyes wide open to what comes next, not just what has already happened. The gospel has already told us that Jesus died, was buried, he rose again from the dead, he paid for our sins, and because he rose again, his atoning work was accepted. And therefore, Romans 5.1 says there's no more condemnation if you're in Christ. But there are some confusions about what comes next. And I just want you to think about these wonders for a moment. If you, if you could follow along with the text that I have for you. Uh, Mark chapter 13, verse 26. And when they see the Son of Man coming again, they're going to see him in clouds with what? With great power and with great glory it's mega it's going or it's actually the word is like uh, for the beginning of politics it means many there is many or much power and and there's going to be great glory now this is what mark is trying to tell folks that are reading don't just get bored with christianity and say oh well it doesn't matter jesus already did it so it doesn't there's nothing left Mark comes back and he says, he's going to come back with wonders. And if you look at verse 32, but concerning that day or concerning that hour, nobody knows. That's why I say Mark is clear in trying to tell us, don't set dates, don't set dates, don't set dates. I think you got the point. Okay, nobody knows, not even the angels, only the Father has set this date. He he had not revealed it to Jesus at this point in time. And so you have, uh, only the Father in heaven knows that he's going to come with his angels. If you look at chapter 14 now, this is getting closer to the end of the book. There was a plot to kill Jesus. And if you go to verse 60 to 65, I want to read these for you. Mark chapter 60, uh, excuse me, Mark 14, verses 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and he asked Jesus... In other words, this is before the council. Jesus is on trial. And the high priest looks at this Jesus character and he says, Have, he says, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men are testifying about you? But, but Jesus remained silent and, answer, and made no answer again. But the high priest said to him, Are you the Christ? Are you the anointed one? Are you the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. I should almost just stop at that. He knew who he was, and I pray you know who he is. But Jesus declared to the high priest, I am, and then he goes on to explain to him about what this means to be the eternal son of God. He says, I will, and he he says, I am, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power, and you will see the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. (laughs) I'm gonna tell you. If you're the high priest, you're going to say, that's not allowed. You can't do that. You can't talk like that. You're a heretic. Get out. I could just see him trying to protect. But what Jesus is telling the people and Mark wants us to know is the wonder of it all. The wonder of his second coming. Just think about this for a moment. This is verse 62. And you will see that the great I am The one who has the status of being at the right hand of God the Father. That's the one who is going to come again. And he's going to come with the clouds of heaven. Some could interpret this as Acts 1.11. You men of Galilee, why? Standing, looking up in the clouds. This same Jesus is going to come back as you've seen him go. That's one way of looking at it as the cumulus stuff. But I believe that this is being the great cloud of witnesses. And I believe that when he comes back, he's not coming back all by himself. When the trumpet sounds, we have several texts to talk about it. But Mark only wants the people to know that it's going to be wondrous. It's going to be amazing. And when the high priest heard this, he was so angry. You can read the next text and you can see. uh, He says, you have heard this blasphemy. And he, he looks at the other religious people and he says, what's your decision? He says, because they all need to condemn him. And they did. And hence they ended up moving towards crucifixion. They began to spit on Jesus, to cover Jesus' face. They, used, they started to punch him, and they were saying, you think you're special? Will tell us who punched you. And this is because he told them that he's coming again with wonders. I want to finish the message up with this, the application. Because Mark tells us a lot about the coming of the Christ. And you can see the emphasis is not on on Bethlehem. It is on the return in glory and power. Wow. In Mark chapter 8. In Mark chapter 8. and chapter 9. If you turn there, you'll be able to see a couple of things here. In verse 34 of chapter 8. After Jesus has foretold his death and his resurrection... Uh, in chapter 31, excuse me, in chapter 8, verse 31, he began to tell his disciples about the Son of Man's suffering and the many things that he would be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and that he would even be killed and then raised, be, be a, and after three days rise again. And he told this plainly to his disciples to encourage them. But after calling the crowds to him, verse 34, uh, the Bible goes on to say, in calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said, Is anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life in this world will lose it in the world to come. For whoever loses his life now for my sake and the gospel's sake will actually save his life. For what does it profit a man, what does it profit a person if you gain everything in this world, if you gain everything that the world has to offer? and you forfeit your soul. I finished with this application. This, this verse in Mark chapter eight was the one verse that God used to call me into ministry. I was working in Washington DC in the United States Senate. I was on, in room 204, second floor. It was, a, it was when the Republicans had actually taken over the Senate and that had not happened for decades. Ronald Reagan was in the White House, and uh, they just got the contract for America. It seemed as though there was this big red wave. The people in this country were fed up with what was before, and it was a, like a, um, this, this new movement came in. And in, in God's providence, as a 19-year-old, I'm standing there in the seat of power, and I'm watching what's going on in D.C., and on the second week of working in, the, in that particular place, my boss lady worked with three of the senators, Helms McClure and him and uh, Sims from Idaho. And uh, when she called me into her office, you, some of you have heard it, many of you haven't. She looked at me and she said, "We like you. But we don't want you talking about Jesus here." It was almost like this is a violation of church and state. And we want to be above reproach. And she's looking at me saying, yes, I know you're connected with the fundamentalists down at Liberty, you know, with the moral majority and stuff. She kind of knew all that. She was a smart gal. I had a lot of respect for her. And she was basically trying to tell me, zip it. Be a good boy. Do all the gopher work for us. Run over to the Library of Congress, run to this office, deliver this paper for me. Oh, yes, and you can write some things on your own in order to get your college credit, but just be a nice boy. And I remember, as I've told you before, being tormented in those moments. The first thing was conviction. She told me that I was witnessing to people and I couldn't even remember one person that I actually witnessed to. Because I always thought witnessing was you had to ask them the EE questions or you had to go through the Romans road or you had to do something like that. Apparently, I was witnessing without doing that. And apparently there were some people that were wrestling with what they believed about God because of it, because the boss lady heard about it and came and told me. I was a little bit humiliated that I couldn't remember the people that I had talked to. Then then I got off of that bandwagon real quick, and then I started to think, who are you? I should be witnessing to you about Jesus. Obviously, I haven't, and I need to. And then I'm like, you can't tell me that I can't. And as I walked home that day, this verse came to my mind. I was walking by the Supreme Court, not too far from where a lot of people were this week, when the, uh, the Roe versus Wade case is now being uh, reconsidered because of the Mississippi issues. Uh, all that kind of stuff is happening. And I was walking past that road, on, towards Constitution Avenue, and this verse came up. What does it profit you if you gain the whole world? You get everything you want. You attain to the stuff that you aspire to and you lose your own soul. And it was like the Holy Spirit took that last phrase and he says, What do you profit if you get people to make this journey to vote right and they still go to hell? Because it's not about voting, it's about a relationship with Christ. What have you gained? What is your life worth? if you just get people to vote in the people that you like, your life is going to be empty. That was my calling to ministry. You see, Mark was focused on serving. He said, Jesus came to serve, and that included suffering. And Mark is telling us, keep your eyes on the one who's coming again. Faithfully serve, because the wonders that are going to happen when he returns... Now, I didn't tell you the answer to amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial, pre-rapture. I didn't do all that today. Because Mark didn't do it. Mark wanted his audience to know that Jesus is coming again. Are you ready? Are you looking forward? I want to encourage you, no matter what takes place, no matter who gets voted in 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 November of next year, Jesus is still the Savior that was born one day in Bethlehem. He's the Savior that's coming back for his own. Lord Jesus, I pray that you will minister to all of us. We're quiet in this moment. We ponder what it's like. What's on the horizon? Lord, there was a lot of times when we start thinking about the future, uh, that is when the New Year's comes around and we make some New Year's resolutions. Lord, I pray that we would not forget this fundamental of the faith, that every day brings us closer to that moment in time when the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will be raised incorruptible, and we which are alive and remain will be joining those people, and so shall we ever be with our Lord, with our Savior. Lord, if there's someone in this room today who can't, who doesn't know Jesus is Savior pray that your spirit would open their eyes up to realize that the reason we have the crown of thorns on that cross is to remind us that we don't worship the wood, we don't worship the crucifixion, we worship the one who offered himself in our place. Lord, I pray that you will strengthen our faith so that as we look to the Advent season, that we will not only see the baby in humiliation, but that we will see the Savior in great exaltation, who's coming again to receive us to himself. Lord, in John 14, you told us, don't let our hearts be troubled. When we trust in the Father, we can trust in the words of Christ, that you've gone to prepare a place for us And you will come again to receive us, to be with you forever. Lord, I pray that our hearts would not be troubled, but that they would be encouraged to carry on. No matter what the suffering in this life, I pray that Jesus might be lifted up. And it's in his name I pray.